A lot of us resonate with this phrase, so we see it in religions and self-help books, that money can't buy happiness. And I want to suggest today that, in fact, that's wrong. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. If you'd like to support the work we're doing, please visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, including talks from Gus Speth, Juliet Score, Michael Norton, David Loy, Lee Camp on Redacted Tonight, and Tim Jackson. Since the first Earth Day in 1970, electricity consumption per capita in the U.S., per capita, has gone up 70%. Solid waste generation per capita has gone up 33%. The homes and the lots on which they sit uh, have gotten 50% or more larger in this period. Yet even with these larger homes and larger lots, they're too small to accommodate all our accumulating possessions. One result of this has been the emergence of the self-storage industry. Um, It didn't begin until the 1970s, but it has grown so rapidly that its buildings, if you could pull them together, uh, would now cover the entire island of Manhattan and the entire city of San Francisco in the U.S. I will look forward to the Canadian version of that statistic. Uh, so we have this disease, this affluenza, and uh, we need a speedy recovery uh, from it. Well, the good news is that more and more people sense that at some level, uh, there's a great misdirection uh, in, in life's energy. We focus too much of our lives on material things, on getting and spending, and, and we know that at some level, we're sliding the things that make life truly worthwhile And that's borne out again in our statistics. Uh, We sense, I think, that we are hollowing out whole areas of life, of individual and social autonomy, and of nature. And that if we don't wake up, if we don't wake up soon, we're going to lose the chance to return, to reclaim ourselves, our neglected society, our battered world. Uh, Because if we're not more careful, there won't be anything to return to. We sense that possibility, I think, and we shudder. In the U.S., at least uh, when people aspire to their best thoughts in some recent polls, we get answers like this. 83% of those in the U.S. say that society is not focused on the right priorities. 81% say America is too focused on getting and spending. 88% say America is too materialistic. If these numbers are even half right, there's a powerful base on which to build. And in the bookstores that we see, uh, the shelves are full of books about how to take back your life, how to cope with spiritual hunger in an age of plenty, how to overcome nature deficit disorder. We have a Two programs about education in our schools. One is the No Child Left Behind program that administration has promoted. But we also have a No Child Left Inside program in a number of our states. These books tell us also how to live more simply and more slowly. And on the Internet, there are dozens of websites that tell us how to live with greater environmental soundness, 
how to downshift, what we can do to save the planet and stop global warming. Psychological studies that I've mentioned a couple of times show us that materialism is toxic to happiness and that more and more income and possessions don't lead to lasting gains in one sense of well-being or one satisfaction with, our, with life. And that what does make us happy are warm personal relationships, the closer the better, and giving rather than getting. So, here's a revolutionary new product that's trying to make its way in the marketplace. Nothing. <laughs> Nothing is guaranteed not to put you in further debt. Uh, it's 100% non-toxic, sweatshop-free, zero waste, doesn't contribute to global warming, it's family-friendly, and very fun and creative. This is a true story. The young women who were trying to sell nothing in the shopping mall were arrested. Uh. <laughs> there are many people who are now trying to fight back against this consumerism and commercialization of everything. They're trying to invite us to a new style of life and a new struggle. They're saying to us, uh, confront consumption, practice sufficiency, create social environments where overconsumption is viewed as silly and wasteful and ostentatious, create commercial free zones, buy local, eat slow food, simplify your life, downshift. It's not going to be easy for many of us, uh, but it's important. And if one thing that can change quickly, and we've seen it happen so many times, is can changes, can changes in consumer behavior. It's been a long, long time coming, but I know last for long But now I think I'm able to carry on It's been a long long time coming But I know change is gonna come It's been a long long time coming But I know a change gonna come So are you suggesting there's a kind of uh, good practice of consumption? Well, I believe there is. I mean, I, I think the pr it, it, it gets to this point about not materialist enough. I think it's that, you know, the, the sort of standard formulation that we care about consumer things too much or we're too oriented mm -hmm. to them and that we're supposed to orient to something else, uh, some, a spiritual <laughs> alternative or a non-material, non-consumer alternative, I think is getting it wrong. Mm. Um, the problem is what the goods mean. Uh, and um, so status, for example, um, too much of what we're doing is expressing the wrong or a bad set of values through, I mean, status consumption is expressing, I think, a not good set of values through what we consume. Um, I would like to see us consume in ways that actually 
express the set of values that we say we have. And I think if we did that, it, we wouldn't be less, less consumer-oriented in some sense. We would be different kinds of consumers. Um, so we would, we would care about the impacts of our consumer goods on the earth, for example. So we would keep things longer. We might care more about what we wear, not less. I mean, the average American is now purchasing 70 new pieces of apparel a year. 70. And we are throwing them out at an incredible rate. Um, and we're shipping them abroad, and we're mm. destroying indigenous apparel producers in Africa uh, because all these mm. cheap American cast-offs are going there. Um, the problem isn't, you know, it's not that we need to stop caring about what we wear. We need to care more about it in, in the sense of, you know, so that we don't buy things that we only wear once. Mm. I mean, many of my students will say, yeah, they buy things they only wear once, and then they pitch them. I know, you know, probably no one in this room does that. But uh, um, it, it's sort of, when I think about what kind of apparel consumer should we be, I'm not saying that people should care less about how they look or the kind of clothes they wear or something, but I think they should, um, we need to invest more into our clothes in a certain sense. Keep them longer, care more about them. Think more before we purchase something. Um, live with. I, I I like to say we should think about our clothes like pets. You know, you, you think carefully before you bring it in to the house. You you care for it well. If you decide that you need to separate, you find a good home for it. You know, I mean that's a nice relationship to have with a material good. It took a lot of the Earth's resources and human labor to produce that good. Uh, care about it. Can I give an example? I lived yeah. in Japan for a long time, and as, as we all know, I mean, the Japanese tend to live in very small places because it's such a crowded society. And the average Japanese person has a very small wardrobe in relation to ours. Uh, uh, they would, but it would be very high quality. They would choose their clothes very carefully. They would often be very expensive, uh, but they would just have a few things. That's all they have room for, and then they would really appreciate and take good care of them. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's an example of being more materialistic in the sense of really taking the materiality more seriously. It's a much more ecologically sustainable consumer model. Um, it, it's not one which says, oh, you know, it, you're superficial if you care about clothes. I, I don't believe that. I mean, that's a common thing you hear from consumer critics, but it's not true. I mean, people have cared about what they wear for all of human history. What we wear, is, it's, it's really important. It says a lot about who we are. So what are the things we want to say through what we buy to put on our, on our bodies? You know, those are the kinds of consumer questions mm -hmm. uh, I think we, we can ask. We can see it really easily in food. You know, consumer critics never say, oh, you shouldn't eat food. It's all about let's have a slow food movement. Let's have a local food movement. Let's get pleasure back in our food. Let's, um, let's not destroy the earth with our food. Let's create more conviviality and sociability with our food and so forth. But the same thing can be true of other consumer goods. They're just like food too, I think.
As an anti-consumerism advocate, I would like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and get everything you can get used from a place like Craigslist. You will save yourself a boatload of money and reduce the endless flow of new stuff getting shipped across the world because that seems more convenient than meeting a neighbor. Failing that, try a locally owned small business. Failing that, if you're left with no choice other than to buy something from a place like Amazon, then at least there's a way you can do it and support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at bestofleft.com and shop as you normally would. Better yet, click through on the link to your country's Amazon store only once and then bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumption altogether, consuming sustainably, or at least consuming in a subversive way. So I want to talk today about money and happiness, which are two things that a lot of us spend a lot of our time uh, thinking about, either trying to earn them or trying to increase them. And a lot of us resonate with this phrase, so we see it in religions and self-help books, that money can't buy happiness. And I want to suggest today that, in fact, that's wrong. And that <laughs> I'm at a business school, so that's what we do. So that that's wrong. And in fact, if you think that, you're actually just not spending it right. So that instead of spending it the way you usually spend it, maybe if you spent it differently, that might work a little bit uh, better. And, and before I tell you the ways that you can spend it that will make you happier, let's think about the ways we usually spend it that don't, in fact, make us happier. We had a little natural experiment. So, so CNN a little while ago wrote this uh, interesting article on what happens to people when they win the lottery. Turns out people think when they win the lottery, their lives are going to be amazing. This article is about how their lives get ruined. So what happens when people win the lottery is, number one, they spend all the money and go into debt. And number two, all of their friends and everyone they've ever met find them and bug them for money. And it ruins their social relationships, in fact. So they have more debt and worse friendships than they had before they won the lottery. What was interesting about the article was people started commenting on the article, readers of the thing. And instead of talking about how it had made them realize that money doesn't lead to happiness, everyone instantly started saying, you know what I would do if I won the lottery? And, and fantasizing about what they do. And here's just two of the ones that, that we saw that are just really interesting to think about. One person wrote in, when I win, I'm going to buy my own little mountain and have a little house on top. <laughs> And another person wrote, I would fill a big bathtub with money and get in the tub while smoking a big fat cigar and sipping a glass of champagne. This is even worse now. Then I'd have a picture taken and dozens of glossies made. Anyone begging for money or trying to extort from me would receive a copy of the picture and nothing else. And so many of the comments were exactly of this type where people got money and in fact it made them antisocial. So we, I told you that it ruins people's lives and that their friends bug them. It also, money often makes us feel very selfish and we do things only for ourselves. And we said, well, maybe the reason that money doesn't make us happy is that we're always spending it on the wrong things, and in particular that we're always spending it on ourselves. And we thought, I wonder what would happen if we made people spend more of their money on other people. So instead of being antisocial with your money, what if you were a little bit more pro-social with your money? And we thought, let's make people do it and see what happens. So let's have some people do what they usually do and spend money on themselves, and let's make some people give money away and measure their happiness and see if, in fact, they get happier. So the first way that we did this on uh, one uh, Vancouver morning, we went out on the campus uh, at University of British Columbia, and we approached people and said, do you want to be in an experiment? And they said yes. We, gave, we asked them how happy they were, and then we gave them an envelope. And one of the envelopes had things in it that said, by 5 p.m. today, spend this money on 
yourself. So when we gave some examples of what you could spend it on. Other people in the morning got a slip of paper that said, by 5 p.m. today, spend this money on somebody else. Also inside the envelope was money, and we manipulated how much money we gave them. So some people got this slip of paper and $5. Some people got this slip of paper and $20. We let them go about their day. They uh, did whatever they wanted to do. We found out that they did, in fact, spend it in the way that we asked them to. We called them up at night and asked them, what would you spend it on, and how happy do you feel now? What did they spend it on? Well, these are college undergrads, so a lot of what they spent it on for themselves was things like earrings and makeup. One woman said she bought a stuffed animal for her niece. Uh, people gave money to homeless people. Huge effect here of uh, Starbucks. So <laughs> if you give undergraduates $5, it looks like coffee to them, and they run over to Starbucks and spend it as fast as they can. But some people bought a coffee for themselves the way they usually would, but other people said that they bought a coffee for somebody else. So the very same purchase just targeted toward yourself or targeted toward some, somebody else. What did we find when we called them back at the end of the day? People who spent money on other people got happier. People who spent money on themselves, nothing happened. It didn't make them less happy. It just didn't do much for them. And the other thing we saw is that the amount of money doesn't matter that much. So people thought that $20 would be way better than $5. In fact, it doesn't matter how much money you spent. What really matters is that you spent it on somebody else rather than on yourself. We see this again and again when we give people money uh, to spend on other people instead of on themselves. Of course, these are undergraduates in Canada, not the world's most representative uh, population. They're also fairly wealthy and affluent and all these other sorts of things. We wanted to see if this holds true everywhere in the world or just among wealthy countries. So we went, in fact, to Uganda and ran a very similar experiment. So imagine instead of just people Canada, we say, name the last time you spent money on yourself or other people, describe it, how happy did it make you? Or in Uganda, name the last time you spent money on yourself or other people, uh, and describe that, and then we ask them how happy they are again. And what we see is sort of amazing because there's human universals on what you do with your money and then real cultural differences on what you do as well. So, for example, one uh, guy uh, from Uganda says this. He says, I called a girl I wish to love. We basically went out on a date, and he, he says at the end that he didn't achieve her uh, up till now. Here's a guy from uh, Canada. Very similar thing. Uh, I took my girlfriend out for dinner, we went to a movie, we left early, and then went back to her room for only cake. Just, just gave them <laughs> Human universal. So you spend money on other people, you're being nice to them. Maybe you have something in mind, maybe not. But then we see extraordinary differences. So, so look at these two. This is a woman from Canada. We say, name a time you spent money on somebody else. She says, uh, you know, I bought a present for my mom. I drove to the mall in my car, bought a present, gave it to my mom. Perfectly nice thing to do. It's good to get gifts for people that you know. Compare that to this woman from Uganda. Uh, I was walking and met a longtime friend whose, whose son was sick with malaria. They had no money. They went to a clinic, uh, and I gave her this money. This isn't $10,000. It's the local currency. So it's, it's a very small amount of money, in fact. But enormously different motivations here. This is a real medical need, literally a life-saving donation. Above, it's just kind of, I got, bought a gift for my mother. What we see again, though, is that the specific way that you spend on other people isn't nearly as important as the fact that you spend on other people in order to make yourself happy, which is really quite important. So you don't have to do amazing things with your money to make yourself happy. You can do small, trivial things and yet still get these benefits from doing this. These are only two countries. We also wanted to go even broader and look at every country in the world, if we could, to see what the relationship is between money and happiness. We got data from uh, the Gallup organization, which you know from all the political polls that have been happening lately. They asked people, did you donate money to charity recently? And they asked them, how happy are you with your life in general? And we can see what the relationship is between those two things. Are they positively correlated? Giving money makes you happy? Or are they negatively correlated? On this map, green will mean they're positively correlated, and red means they're negatively correlated. And you can see 
the world is crazily green. So in every, almost every country in the world where we have this data, people who give money to charity are happier people than people who don't give money to charity. I know you're all looking at that red country in the middle. I would be a jerk and not tell you what it is, but it's, in fact, it's Central African Republic. You can make up stories. Uh, maybe it's different there for some reason or another. Just below that to the right is Rwanda, though, which is amazingly green. So almost everywhere we look, we see that giving money away makes you happier than keeping it uh, for yourself. What about your work life, which is where we spend all the rest of our time when we're not with the people we know? We decided to infiltrate some companies and do a very similar thing. So these are sales teams uh, in Belgium. They work in teams. They go out and sell basically to uh, doctors and try to get them to buy drugs. So we, we can look to see how well they sell things. Uh, as a function of being a member of a team. Some teams, we give people on the team some money for themselves and say, spend it however you want on yourself, just like we did with the undergrads in Canada. But other teams, we say, here's 15 euro. Spend it on one of your teammates this week. Buy them something as a gift or a present and give it to them. And then we can see, now we've got teams that spend on themselves and we've got these pro-social teams, so we give money to make the team a little bit better. The reason I have a ridiculous pinata there is one of the teams pulled their money and bought a pinata, and they all got around and smashed the pinata, and all the candy fell out and things like that. A very silly, trivial thing to do, but think of the difference on a team that didn't do that at all, that got 15 euro, put it in their pocket, maybe bought themselves a coffee, or teams that had this pro-social experience where they all bonded together to buy something and do a group activity. What we see is that, in fact, the teams that are pro-social sell more stuff than the teams that only got money for themselves. And one way to think about it is, for every 15 euro you give people for themselves, they put it in their pocket, they don't do anything different than they did before, you don't get any money from that. You actually lose money, because it doesn't motivate them to perform any better. But when you give them 15 euro to spend on their teammates, they do so much better on their teams that you actually get a huge win on investing this kind of money. And I realize that you're probably thinking to yourselves, this is all fine, but there's a context that's incredibly important for public policy, and I can't imagine it would work there. And if, if basically, if he doesn't show me that it works here, I don't believe anything he said. And I know that what, what you're all thinking about are dodgeball teams. <laughs> This was a huge criticism that we got, you know, to say, if, if you can't show with dodgeball teams, this is all stupid. So we, we went out and found these dodgeball teams and infiltrated them, and we did the exact same thing as before. So some teams, we give people on the team money, they spend it on themselves. Other teams, we give them money to spend on their dodgeball teammates. The teams that spent money on themselves, they're just the same winning percentage as they were before. The teams that we give them money to spend on each other, they become different teams, and in fact, they dominate the league by the time they're done. Across all of these different contexts, your personal life, your work life, even silly things like intramural sports, we see spending on other people has a bigger return for you than spending uh, on yourself. And so I'll just say, I, I think if you think money can't buy happiness, you're not spending it right. Uh, the implication is not, you know, you should buy this product instead of that product, and that's the way to make yourself happier. It's in fact that you should stop thinking about which product to buy for yourself and try giving some of it to other people instead. And we luckily have an opportunity for you DonorsChoose.org is, is a nonprofit for uh, mainly uh, public school teachers in low-income schools. They post projects, so they say, I want to teach uh, Huckleberry Finn to my class, and we don't have the books. Or I want a microscope to show my, teach my students science, and we don't have a microscope. You and I can go on and buy it for them. The teacher writes you a thank you note. The kids write you a thank you note. Sometimes they send you pictures of them using the microscope. It's an extraordinary thing. Go to the website and start yourself on the process of thinking, again, less about how can I spend money on myself and more about if I've got $5 or $15, what can I do to benefit other people? Because ultimately when you do that, you'll find out you'll benefit yourself much more. Thank you.
You've thought a lot about this too, you know, this uh, insatiability uh, factor and how people are um, motivated always, it seems, to participate in what you call a cycle of work and spend. What, what is that cycle of work and spend? If you think about the core dynamics of a capitalist or market economy, um, one of the important things is that we have continual productivity growth, which means that we can produce any given amount of output using uh, fewer hours of labor. And annually, productivity goes up. And we're faced with the choice, do we work the same amount and produce more, or do we decide that we have enough and reduce working hours? And what the cycle of work and spend says is that we are continually taking the first choice, which is not reducing hours of work, but using productivity growth to produce more output. That output then gets channeled into uh, the population. Now, historically, more of it went to workers, and um, you know, some of it goes to owners and some of it goes to workers. Um, recently, workers haven't gotten very much of their productivity growth, but the, in the post-war era, post-World War II era, um, basically you had a lot of that productivity growth getting channeled into incomes for workers' incomes, um, and then it got spent. And the cycle has to do with people's attitudes towards it. Um, if you ask workers whether they'd rather have more money or more free time, you had very high uh, desires for more free time rather than more money. But once people get the money and they spend it, they're very loath to go back to what they said they wanted in the prior mm -hmm. era. So what happens is that the society continually is channeling productivity growth into output. Output goes into income and spending. And people don't necessarily feel better off year by year because everybody's spending together and well-being in relationship to spending is a very relative thing. And is everyone caught that in the cycle? That was a mouthful. <laughs> um, <laughs> there, one of the groups I've studied are, are downshifters, mm -hmm. people who are actually voluntarily, and well, they're both in voluntary and involuntary downshifters, but the voluntary downshifters are people who are deliberately opting out of the, that cycle, choosing to work less mm. and spend less and have less income. And that's, I think, a growing movement in this country. Of course, the involuntary downshifter population, people who are having this happen not by choice, is um, also considerable and, at the moment, um, growing quite rapidly. Mm. So love a life where spring has sprung. Here at Best of the Left, we know that it's not enough just to stay informed. You need to get active if you actually want to change the world for the better. That's why we promote great activism opportunities every chance we get. Also, I can only reach so many people on my own, but with your help, we can extend that reach. The episode show notes are most likely available on the device you're using to listen right now, and if they're not, you can see them on the website. Simply click the title of any segment you want to share and then easily post it to your social networks or send it directly to friends. 
You joining these actions and helping amplify the show to get even more people involved is critical to our mission to change the world for the better. Get started right now in the show notes on the device you're using or visit the website from any device at bestofleft.com. You say to the sky on the crest of a wave. Tonight, I'm going to talk about the most censored topic on television. There is no more ignored, blacked out, and redacted issue on our mainstream airwaves than the one I'm going to cover right now. It's Asian people, am I right? They're the worst! And no one mentions it! Right? Well, God, Phil, uh, I didn't see you. He snuck up on me like a nin-Jehovah's Witness. Jehovah's a Witness. A nin-Jehovah's Witness. Yeah, with the door knocking. Listen, I'm sorry, I gotta get back to this whole monologue. Don't. God, he's good at that. Anyway, what's actually censored the most is the discussion about our advertisers that pay for most of the networks you watch, and by extension, our insane obsession with endless consumerism. Over an 80-year lifespan, we watch 15 and a half years of television, 15 and a half years of having our brains liquefied and sodomized, zombified and glorifying products and nonsense, clothing and fake we take in between 1,000 and 5,000 advertisements and brand names per day, and only half of those are for Geico. 5,000 a day! Do you ever stop to think about what kind of impact that has on us? The placebo effect is very powerful, meaning you can get pain relief from simply thinking you'll get pain relief. So what's the impact of being endlessly indoctrinated into this warship of products in order to keep the everlasting buying machine going? Basically, ads are assholes. They are. It would be very obvious if they were people. If an ad were, if a commercial were a guy walking up to you on the street just going, Hey! 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 If you wore these pants, then the hot girls would... Yeah, yeah, like the really hot girls. Not that ugly broad you call a girlfriend. And by the way, could you mention to her that she needs to lose a little weight and do something about her hair, all right? Which she could do if she just used these diet pills and this hair gel. She could. And by the way, are you happy with your penis size? Are you? If you are, that's cool. A lot of women are into, what do you call that, fun size. A lot of women are into fun size. I haven't met any, but I'm sure they're out there. Listen, if you change your mind, all you have to do is take a couple of these and soon you'll have to hire people to help you carry your junk around like a train on a wedding dress you will but how are you going to call your junk carriers with that crappy phone you got there you got to get this phone with the bullshit technology that makes other people feel better than you because they own it and they are they are better than you Oh, God, all this stuff you need and don't have is making me anxious. Is it making you anxious? Is it? Is it? Is it? Are you anxious now? Are you? Are you? Are you? Then just take a couple of these and you will feel amazing. Plus, bonus side effect, those pills also make your butt hair shiny and more manageable with extra bounce. We have that guy in our heads all day long. All right. And for most of us, it gives us an underlying misery or alienation as if life lacks something important. Nearly 70 percent of Americans are on prescription drugs and we're one of the most depressed countries. We're not enjoying life. 
We're manufacturing, we're manufacturing a version of life we were told is what happiness looks like by a guy with a bright white teeth and perfect eyebrows. And purchasing craptastic plastic things has become our duty as a good member of society. It's what we talk about with our friends and co-workers. But then we get our crappy product home and realize it doesn't satisfy us because half of its allure was the fact we didn't have it. And the other half was that the ad promised us utter euphoria. But for some reason, this home barbecue set didn't fix my marriage. Uh, maybe it doesn't work with soy dogs? I don't know. What the vast majority of commercials tell us to value in life isn't what matters. But even for those who realize that, the hollowness doesn't go away. Kind of like growing up wanting nothing more than your dad's approval. And you never get it. But one day you realize your dad is a drunk, pathetic loser who smells like mustard and wears pants that are way too tight. But that realization still doesn't make the emptiness go away. By the way, my dad is none of those things, which is going to make my memoir suck. Thanks a lot, Dad. You're only in your 70s. There's still time left to start beating me or at least refuse to play catch. Point is, the ads tell us money, celebrity, and materialism are what matters. But of course they aren't. We're a world of people trying to get a full meal from cotton candy. It's bright and tasty, but you will die trying to sustain yourself on it. Plus, it usually means you have to hang out with clowns, and they're f***ing creepy. So why is this the most censored topic? Because questioning this manipulative Ponzi scheme is bad for business. It upsets the advertisers, and we can't do that. So instead, just never question, never dig deeper, never ask whether it needs to be this way. In fact, you should try... Go back to sleep, beer. It's my favorite drink for when I'm afraid I might wake up. I need to move. I need to wake up. I need to change. I need to shake up. I need to speak out. Something's got to break up. I've been asleep. You speak as a Buddhist philosopher, I understand, and you've talked about how we've institutionalized what Buddhists talk about as three poisons, three mm. things that uh, influence our behavior in, in uh, ways that aren't necessarily very positive. Mm -hmm. um, so you've talked about that that's ill will, um, that's um, greed, mm -hmm. and that's delusion. Mm -hmm. And you said we've institutionalized these, so that delusion is institutionalized in the mass media, ill will and militarization, and greed in the economic system. Mm -hmm. what, can you explain that? How is greed institutionalized in the economic system? Well, what is greed? I mean, uh, I think from a Buddhist definition, you would understand it as a very good example of, of tanha, of the kind of craving that is never satisfied. And if you look at our economic system, I think you can see it in at least operating in at least two ways. One way is... Uh, in terms of corporate profits and corporate growth, by definition, the corporation or the GNP is never big enough. It's always, there's always the desire for more profitability, more market share. 
But it's also true, obviously, on the consumer side as well, that the system works by continuing to persuade us that it's the next thing that we consume will make us happy. And it's very important, of course, in that system that we never actually get there. talk to you today about prosperity, about our hopes for a shared and lasting prosperity. And not just us, but the two billion people worldwide who are still chronically undernourished. And hope actually is at the heart of this. In fact, the Latin word for hope is at the heart of the word prosperity, prospere, speres, hope, in accordance with our hopes and expectations. The irony is, though, that we have cashed out prosperity, almost literally in terms of money and economic growth. And we've grown our economies so much that we now stand in a real danger of undermining hope, running down resources, cutting down rainforests, spilling oil into the Gulf of Mexico, changing the climate. And the only thing that has actually remotely slowed down the relentless rise of carbon emissions over the last two to three decades is recession. And recession, of course, isn't exactly a recipe for hope either, as we're busy finding out. So we're caught in a kind of trap. It's a dilemma, dilemma of growth. We can't live with it. We can't live without it. Trash the system or crash the planet. It's a tough choice. It isn't much of a choice. And our best avenue of escape from this, actually, is a, it's a kind of blind faith in our own cleverness, in technology, in efficiency, in doing things more efficiently. Now, I haven't got anything against efficiency, and I think we are a clever species sometimes. But I think we should also just check the numbers, take a reality check here. So I want you to imagine a world in 2050 of around 9 billion people all aspiring to Western incomes, Western lifestyles. And I want to ask the question, and we'll give them that 2% hike in income, in salary each year as well, because we believe in growth. And I want to Ask the question, how far and how fast would we have to move? How clever would we have to be? How much technology would we need in this world to deliver our carbon targets? And here in my chart on the left-hand side is where we are now. This is the carbon intensity of economic growth in the economy at the moment. It's around about 770 grams of carbon. In the world I described to you, we have to be right over here on the right-hand side. It's six grams of carbon. It's a 130-fold improvement, and that is 10 times further and faster than anything we've ever achieved in industrial history. Maybe we can do it. Maybe it's possible. Who knows? Maybe we can even go further and get an economy that pulls carbon out of the atmosphere, which is what we're going to need to be doing by the end of the century. But shouldn't we just check first that the economic system that we have is remotely capable of delivering this kind of improvement. So I want to just spend a couple of minutes on system dynamics. It's a bit complex, and I apologize for that. What I'll try and do is I'll try and paraphrase it in sort of human terms. So it looks a little bit like this. Firms produce goods for households. That's us. 
and provide us with incomes. And that's even better because we can spend those incomes on more goods and services. That's called the circular flow of the economy. It looks harmless enough. I want to just highlight one key feature of this system, which is the role of investment. Now, investment constitutes only about a fifth of the national income in most modern economies, but it plays an absolutely vital role. And what it does, essentially, is to stimulate further consumption growth. It does this in a couple of ways. Chasing productivity, which drives down prices and encourages us to buy more stuff. But I want to concentrate on the role of investment in seeking out novelty, the production and consumption of novelty. Joseph Schumpeter called this the process of creative destruction. It's the process of the production and reproduction of novelty, continually chasing, expanding consumer markets, consumer goods, new consumer goods. And this, this is where it gets interesting because it turns out that human beings have something of an appetite for novelty. We love new stuff. New material stuff, for sure, but also new ideas, new adventures, new experiences. But the materiality matters, too, because in every society that anthropologists have looked at, material stuff operates as a kind of a language, a language of goods, a symbolic language that we use to tell each other stories. Stories, for example, about how important we are. Status-driven, conspicuous consumption thrives from the language of novelty. And here, all of a sudden, we have a system that is locking economic structure with social logic. The economic institutions and who we are as people locked together to drive an engine of growth. And this engine is not just economic value. It is pulling material resources relentlessly through the system driven by our own insatiable appetites, driven, in fact, by a sense of anxiety. Adam Smith, 200 years ago, spoke about our desire for a life without shame. A life without shame. In his day, what that meant was a linen shirt. And today, well, you still need the shirt, but you need um, the hybrid car, the HDTV, two holidays a year in the sun, the netbook, an iPad, the list goes on an almost inexhaustible supply of goods driven by this anxiety. And even if we don't want them, we need to buy them, because if we don't buy them, the system crashes. And to stop it crashing over the last two to three decades, we've expanded the money supply, expanded credit and debt so that people can keep buying stuff. And of course, that expansion was deeply implicated in the crisis. But this, I just want to show you some data here. This is what it looks like, essentially, this credit and debt system, just for the UK. This was the last 15 years before the crash. And you can see there, consumer debt rose dramatically. It was above the GDP for three years in a row, just before the crisis. And in the meantime, personal savings absolutely plummeted. The savings ratio, net savings, were below zero in the middle of 2008, just before the crash. This is people expanding debt, drawing down their savings just to stay in the game. This is a, a strange, rather perverse story. Just to put it in very simple terms, it's a story about us, people, being persuaded to spend money we don't have on things we don't need to create impressions that won't last on people we don't care about. <laughs> Thank you. 
But before we, before we consign ourselves to despair, maybe we should just go back and say, did we get this right? Is this really how people are? Is this really how economists behave? And almost straight away, we actually run up against a, a couple of anomalies. The first one is in the crisis itself, in the crisis, in the recession, what do people want to do? They want to hunker down. They want to look to the future. They want to spend less and save more. But saving is exactly the wrong thing to do from the system point of view. Keynes called this the paradox of thrift. Saving slows down recovery. And politicians call on us continually to draw down more debt, to draw down our own savings even further, just so that we can get the show back on the road, so we can keep this growth-based economy going. It's an anomaly. It's a place where the system actually is at odds with who we are as people. Here's another one, completely different one. Why is it that we don't do the blindingly obvious things we should do to combat climate change. Very, very simple things like buying energy efficient appliances, putting in efficient lights, turning the lights off occasionally, insulating our homes. These things save carbon, they save energy, they save us money. So why is it that though they make perfect economic sense, we don't do them? Well, I had my own personal insight into this a few years ago. It was a Sunday evening, Sunday afternoon. And it was just after, actually, to be honest, um, a, too long after we had moved into a new house. And I had finally got around to doing some draft stripping, installing insulation around the windows and doors to keep out the drafts. And my uh, then five-year-old daughter was um, helping me in the way that five-year-olds do. And we'd been doing this for a while when she turned to me very solemnly and said, um, will this really keep out the giraffes? <laughs> Here they are, the giraffes. You can hear the five-year-old mind working. These ones, interestingly, were 400 miles north of here, outside Barrow-in-Furness in Cumbria. Goodness knows what they make of the Lake District weather. But actually, that childish misrepresentation stuck with me because it suddenly became clear to me why we don't do the blindingly obvious things. We're too busy keeping out the giraffes, putting the kids on the bus, in the morning, get ourselves to work on time, surviving email overload and shop floor politics, foraging for groceries, throwing together meals, escaping for a couple of precious hours in the evening into primetime TV or, 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 or TED online, getting from one end of the day to the other, keeping out the giraffes. <laughs> what is the objective? What is the objective of the consumer? Mary Douglas asked in an essay on poverty, written 35 years ago. It is, she said, um, to help create the social world and find a credible place in it. Now, that is a, a deeply humanizing vision of our lives. And it's a completely different vision than the one that lies at the heart of this economic model. So who are we? Who are these people? Are we these novelty-seeking, hedonistic, selfish individuals? Or might we actually occasionally be something like the selfless altruist depicted in Rembrandt's lovely, lovely sketch here? Well, psychology actually says there is a tension, a tension between self-regarding behaviors and other-regarding behaviors. And these tensions have deep evolutionary roots. So selfish behavior is adaptive in certain circumstances, fight or flight. But other regarding behaviors 
are essential to our evolution as social beings. And perhaps even more interesting from our point of view, another tension between novelty-seeking behaviours and tradition or conservation. Novelty is adaptive when things are changing and you need to adapt yourself. Tradition is essential to lay down the stability to raise families and form cohesive social groups. So here, all of a sudden, we're looking at a map of the human heart. And it reveals to us suddenly the crux of the matter. What we've done is we've created economies. We've created systems which systematically privilege, encourage one narrow quadrant of the human soul and left the others unregarded. And in the same token, the solution becomes clear because this isn't, therefore, about changing human nature. It isn't, in fact, about curtailing possibilities. It is about opening up. It is about allowing ourselves the freedom to become fully human, recognizing the depth and the breadth of the human psyche and building institutions to protect Rembrandt's fragile altruist within. What does all this mean for economics? What would economies look like if we took that vision of human nature at their heart and stretched them along these orthogonal dimensions of the human psyche? Well, it might look a little bit like the 4,000 community interest companies that have sprung up in the UK over the last five years and a similar rise in B corporations in the United States. Enterprises that have ecological and social goals written into their constitution, at their heart. Companies, in fact, like this one, Ecosia, and I just want to very quickly show you this. Ecosia is an internet search engine. Internet search engines work by drawing revenues from sponsored links that appear when you do a search, and Ecosia works in pretty much the same way. So um, we can do that here. We can just put in uh, a little search term. There you go, Oxford, that's where we are. See what comes up. The difference with Ecosia, though, is that in Ecosia's case, it draws the revenues in the same way, but it allocates 80% of those revenues to a rainforest protection project in the Amazon. And we're going to do it. We're just going to click on Nature Jobs UK in case anyone out there is looking for a job in the recession. That's the page to go to. And what happened then was the sponsor gave revenues to Ecosia, and Ecosia is giving 80% of those revenues to a rainforest protection project. It's taking profits from one place and allocating them into the protection of ecological resources. It's a different kind of enterprise for a new economy. It's a form, if you like, of ecological altruism. If perhaps something along those lines, maybe it's that. Whatever it is, whatever this new economy is, um, what we need the economy to do, in fact, is to put investment back into the heart of the model, to reconceive investment. Only now, investment isn't going to be about um, the relentless and mindless pursuit of consumption growth. Investment has to be a different beast. Investment has to be, in the new economy, protecting and nurturing the ecological assets on which our future depends. It has to be about transition. It has to be investing in low-carbon technologies and infrastructures. We have to invest, in fact, in the idea of a meaningful prosperity, providing capabilities for people to flourish. And, of course, this task has 
material dimensions. It would be nonsense to talk about people flourishing if they didn't have food, clothing, and shelter. But it's also clear that prosperity goes beyond this. It has social and psychological aims. Family, friendship, commitment, society, participating in the life of that society. And this, too, requires investment. Investment, for example, in places, places where we can connect, places where we can participate, shared spaces, concert halls, gardens, public parks, libraries, museums, quiet centers, places of joy and celebration, places of tranquility and contemplation, sites for the cultivation of a common citizenship in Michael Sandel's lovely phrase. An investment, investment after all is just such a basic economic concept, is nothing more nor less than a relationship between the present and the future. A shared present and a common future. And we need that relationship to reflect, to reclaim hope. So let me come back with this sense of hope to the two billion people still trying to live each day on less than the price of a skinny latte from the cafe next door. What can we offer those people? It's clear that we have a responsibility to help lift them out of poverty. It's clear that we have a responsibility to make room for growth, where growth really matters in those poorest nations. And it's also clear that we will never achieve that unless we're capable of redefining a meaningful sense of prosperity in the richer nations, a prosperity that is more meaningful and less materialistic than the growth-based model. So this is not just a Western post-materialist fantasy. In fact, a, an African philosopher wrote to me when Prosperity Without Growth was published, pointing out the similarities between this view of prosperity and the traditional African concept of Ubuntu. Ubuntu says, I am because we are. Prosperity is a shared Endeavor, its roots are long and deep, its foundations, I've tried to show, exist already inside each of us. So this is not about standing in the way of development. It's not about overthrowing capitalism. It's not about trying to change human nature. What we're doing here is we're taking a few simple steps towards an economics fit for purpose. And at the heart of that economics, we're placing a more credible, more robust, and more realistic vision of what it means to be human. We just heard clips featuring a talk by Gus Speth on the rise of stuff and the flatline of happiness, Juliet's score on finding a good practice of consumption where we actually appreciate our stuff more and therefore don't part with it and replace so much of it so often, a TED talk by Michael Norton on how money actually can buy happiness as long as you don't spend it on yourself, we heard Juliet score again the second time on the issues of work, insatiability, and free time. Lee Camp on Redacted Tonight talked about the annoying guy in our heads who screams at us all day long that everything in our lives is terrible and needs to be fixed by something that we can buy. 
David Loy talked about the institutionalization of the Buddhist poison of greed. And finally, we just heard a TED Talk from Tim Jackson looking at the economic mechanisms at play in our consumer culture and the future of a shared prosperity. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now we'll hear from you. Hi, the name is Tim, uh, calling from uh, Boulder, Colorado. Wanted to thank you for some of the recent shows. Uh, the TPP uh, show was really great, and some of the uh, environmental related shows. The one on, uh, you know, the whole agriculture thing and how meat eating, uh, especially in the in the industrialized world, drives climate disaster, was really good. Uh, the show on disobedience I thought was great. It, it's interesting to me that slowly is the climate lurches towards catastrophe, it's not change, it's freaking catastrophe, that we're kind of waking up to the fact that the end is coming. I kind of agree with what McKibben said. It, hopefully it will be one hell of a fight, and it is going to be one hell of a fight, I fear. And when we realize that there won't be a world left for our kids, grandkids, maybe we'll get the fire in our belly and rise up and do something about it. Uh, if we succeed, as I heard recently, one of the most recent horrifying things I've heard is that the plankton in the oceans, if we succeed in acidifying the oceans enough, it'll stop producing oxygen and we'll all suffocate. A pleasant thought, eh? It's just amazing where we've gotten to. And with, you know, 30 years, 60 years of the denial industry helping us get there. Again, thanks much for the show. Hi, Jay. It's Sally from San Francisco. I haven't called in a long time, but couldn't let the episode about the school-to-prison pipeline go by without comment. The critical issue, as I see it, is that across the country, the number of school psychologists has decreased significantly over the same time period that police and schools have increased. In the urban district where I worked for years, over $10 million was spent in 2015-16 to fund 92 police officers, or safety officers as they're called, to work in just over 42 schools. In comparison, the budget for psychological services was just a little over $3 million per year, funding only 32.5 psychologist positions to work in over 64 schools as well as other district-wide um, locations. And this district has been sanctioned by the state for a high number of African-Americans, boys and girls, involved in discipline, and is often held up as an example of the school-to-prison pipeline. And, and this district is not alone. School psychologists are spread so thin, especially in my home state of California, that in almost all districts, except the most wealthy, the only activity in which they engage is assessment of kids to determine if they're eligible for special education. Why? Because this is the only activity school psychologists engage in required by law. IDEA requires initial assessment and then reassessment every three years. So all the other activities a psychologist can do, early intervention, teacher consultation regarding academic failure, behavior management, professional development for teachers is no longer possible. This is significant to this conversation because teachers most need help in figuring out alternative ways to manage student behavior so that conflicts can be resolved successfully. At their most effective, school psychologists work at a primary prevention level to increase capacity, um, teacher capacity, 
to address the needs of all their students. But the current trend is for psychologists to provide little more than just testing. One of your callers said we need more guidance, counselors, and therapists to help kids directly, and I would agree. But helping kids directly isn't the only or the most efficient way to tackle the problem. By helping teachers, far more kids are affected and for much longer. Despite recommendations from the National Association of School Psychologists that students per psychologist not exceed 500 to 700, the ratio for most psychologists in urban schools in California approaches 1,500 to 1. In my former district, it was over 1,200 to 1. In order to change how teachers address discipline in classes so they will not feel the need for police, the most underutilized resource we have and could use is the school psychologist. If all you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. The hammer in this situation is punishment. The nail, kids not following the direction of adults. So there are so many reasons, other possible reasons that for non-compliance, not the least of which could be pre-existing trauma, low skills, or poor relationships with authority figures tainted by racism. School psychologists help teachers reframe their approach so that true problem solving is possible and police are simply bigger hammers. We invest in punishment but not prevention. If we want to change our schools, one of the first steps would be to fully fund enough psychologists not only to provide support to kids who need more help, but support for the adults who teach them. It costs a lot less in the end than costs in schools. It costs a lot less than prisons. But we have to decide to front load the investment before it will pay off, a vision sadly lacking for most cash-strapped districts beset by fearful communities who think police are a solution and not part of the problem. Thanks, Jay. Love the show. Hey, Jay. I was uh, glad to hear. This is Patrick uh, from calling from near Dallas, which is the uh, beefy buckle of the Bible Belt. And um, uh, I was happy to hear the, uh, the resurgence of uh, uh, veganism as a topic. Um, I've called in on this multiple times in the past. I think that there is a lot of misinformation out there about what a vegan diet entails. And I have to tell you, I made some personal health choices about six years ago to experiment with a vegan diet for three weeks. At the time, I was 42, married with three kids, uh, none of whom were even remotely vegetarian. And I grew up in an NRA-loving household, and uh, we ate meat and hunted meat and did all sorts of things, and I was very proud of my brisket. And after three weeks, I felt so much better and found it so much easier than I anticipated that I have stayed vegan for six years. I do not think that everyone will have this experience. A lot of people think about it as giving something up. I just explored new food alternatives. There is no end of delicious vegan food out there to eat. I never consider it a sacrifice. But until I'd been vegan for a few months, I really couldn't honestly look at animal agriculture, both from, you know, animal issues, um, what the animals go through, and for whatever you think free range means, it probably doesn't mean that unless you're buying it from a small family farm where you can see the chickens in the yard. The big companies are, are twisting what you think uh, these things mean. That being said, it is also a tremendous human rights issue in that slaughterhouse workers are 
among the most disadvantaged, overworked, poorly compensated people on the planet, uh, subject to a variety of neuronal, viral, and repetitive motion diseases, the like of which, um, unless you've done the research, you have no idea. It's, uh, it's really horrific, and pretty much all of the meat in America goes through about uh, six large slaughterhouses, whether it's free-range or organic or whatever. And then the last is that, you know, people are talking about personal sacrifice or personal this. Again, I don't really consider it a sacrifice, but, you know, do what you can. If you want to just reduce your meat consumption, hey, do that. If you want to order a veggie burger on the menu when you go out uh, and just see what it's like, if you want to get the sofritas at Chipotle and see what they're like, it's amazingly much more easy to get vegan food than it ever was. And even if you just explore it, it increases the options for everyone out there. I have no idea how the founders of these movements did it in the 70s and the 80s, but the food out there, even not the healthy food, like the vegan ice cream, so much better than they ever used to be. It's really not as much of a challenge. And I work probably 80 hours a week. Uh, my wife works part-time, and we've got three kids uh, in uh, busy high school with a lot of extracurricular activities. So you just do the best you can do, you know? And uh, no one is judging you. I, one thing I learned when I turned vegan is that everybody just automatically assumed that I was silently judging them. And I'm not, because I spent 42 years chowing down on meat like it was going out of style, just eating myself into a coma. And it wasn't healthy. It was a trigger food for me, and I do so much better without it. I encourage you to just explore what the options are. Uh, and they say that if you switch from a regular omnivorous diet to a vegan diet, you save as much greenhouse gases as if you sold your Hummer and bought a Prius. So individual effort can add up. Individual effort can show itself to others that you're doing what you can to reduce. And you know what? It's not about being the, um, the sort of tricky vegan. You know, you don't, you don't have to deny yourself birthday cake if there's an office party. Somebody brings donuts, have a donut. Even if you don't know for sure they're vegan, do what you can in your own purchasing at home to reduce meat consumption. And uh, I hope that uh, people continue to uh, discuss this in a, in a very civil and enlightened way, like, like I think they are. But uh, it's really not a sacrifice like you think it is. It's really a joy. Thanks for Jay. Sorry I rambled a bit long. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. And as always, you know, I'm always happy to hear any comments on any topic you want to send in, uh, you know, from food choices like we just heard from Patrick. Or, you know, I know I said that the discussion about the election was put to bed. And that may be true, but there there may be more interesting things on that topic. Moving probably away from just here's how I'm voting and here's why. Uh, but I, I may have some thoughts that I don't have time to share today on sort of the game theory 
behind why people vote the way they vote, which is very different from why I'm voting the way I'm voting. When you start taking collective thought processes into consideration, uh, it gets a lot more complicated and a lot more interesting. So if you have any thoughts on that, I would love to hear those. Uh, Regarding today's show, if you have any thoughts on how you maybe got yourself off the hedonic treadmill, especially if you know what that term means, and uh, you know how you got yourself away from consumerism, and if it made you happier, I would love to hear from you. I, I've certainly been sort of getting back in touch with my minimalist roots uh, as of late. Maybe like the happiest moment in my life was when, uh, you know, a lot of people have similar stories. It, it goes back to like, you know, I was happiest when all of my stuff fit in my car and I drove off to college or something, you know, some similar story. And I actually have a story where everything I owned that I had any desire to have with me, you know, I had maybe a couple of things at my parents' house, but mostly it was just like everything I owned fit into like a real big duffel bag and maybe a backpack. And I had a bike, so a little bit extra, but I I, I could take everything I had on the train and I moved from one city to another with everything in my luggage on a train, everything I owned. And the feeling of having that few things was just borderline euphoric, really. And, you know, the thing is with stuff is literally easier to accidentally accumulate it than to intentionally not accumulate it. So, of course, that's what happened to me. You know, I lived in an apartment and then I acquired some furniture and then maybe more furniture. And then I had space for a few more clothes. So, you know, I brought a few more T-shirts or, you know, a few more uh, pairs of pants or whatever. And I've never been bad about that stuff. I mean, I've literally bought like one pair of pants in the last three years. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not I'm not bad at those things, but. I wasn't where I wanted to be, and I definitely have still had those thoughts of, boy, I'd like to have that newer version of the same phone I already own. Uh, I absolutely have had those thoughts, but I've been able to almost turn them off like a light switch in the last year, yeah, about the last year or so. And and for me, it was just a change in mindset. It, It was sort of thinking to myself, about the things I already had and thinking about if I didn't have them at all, what if I lost them? What if they broke? What if, uh, you know, whatever. I just, I, I would think back in my life like, well, I used to not have a phone as nice as I have now, or I used to not have a computer as nice as I have now. I mean, my computer is six years old, but, you know, before six years ago, I didn't have this computer. And so I would think, well, what was life like back before I had these things? And it rekindles this appreciation for what I already have. And in rekindling my appreciation for what I already owned, it completely extinguished any desire to get something new because I already appreciate what I have. So what do I need like a incredibly minor upgrade to what I already have that costs hundreds or thousands of dollars, you know, depending on what item you're talking about. So, so that, that's the transition I've gone through where I, I really have just turned off that hedonic treadmill, that idea that you always need something new to satisfy that urge. And, and I've been really, really happy about it. If anyone's had a similar experience, I'd love to hear your thoughts. And, and, and regarding minimalism in general, 
much more recently, just within the past few months, it sort of occurred to me that's something I could take action on now. Like I do an okay job of not buying new things, but I think I would actually feel better if I got rid of some of the things I already had. So, you know, I look at just my stack of t-shirts and realize, yeah, I probably need one third of those, if that. So why not donate to the others? And, you know, because otherwise they're just sitting on my shelf, not being used by anyone. So, so things like that, I've been able to begin to pare down what I already have while not adding to the pile. And it's been a nice boost to my mood during a year when I haven't been feeling that great in general. Uh, you know, the election has been terrible. Uh, things going on in, in my personal life are, you know, they're fine. Everything's fine, but hasn't been like spectacular. So, you know, you just kind of get in a rut and you feel kind of blue or whatever. And this little area of my life where I, I decided to, you know, where, whereas other things that I don't have control over are sort of blah, this, I felt like, you know what, like, let me, let me take hold of that. And that's, what's been making me feel good recently. So, you know, I thought I would tell my story and then offer as always, if you have any thoughts along those lines, I'd love to hear them. Keep the comments coming in the number again, 202-999-3991 on this or any topic you know the drill. But that is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the very best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and then sharing all of the great content we put out there, especially on Facebook. What you can do is uh, set our page to view our content first, and that'll make sure you see what we post, and then you can like it and share it and comment on it and do all of those things that we appreciate and what helps the show enormously. And then, of course, for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained Stories and forget who it is before.